Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again, and welcome to the Aranex podcast. I'm Craig Eaton, editor at Fathom World. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoy this podcast, please like it, rate it, and share it. Now, you're listening to The Aranax Show because, quite possibly, you have an interest in the oceans, in the seas, and in the maritime industries. Perhaps when you were young, you wanted to go to sea. Maybe you've been to sea or still have a career at sea. However, if you're at school today, I do hope you no longer have the same reasons for wanting to go to sea because you might be disappointed. That's not to say the industry is a bad one to work in, far from it, but it has changed and is still changing. It's changing a lot and those that work on ships are at the front end of this. So this particular podcast episode looks at two stories that have been in the news recently. One deals with the changing definitions of seamanship in connection with technologies and the other the search for technologies to help seafarers. First, we have an academic paper published in Norway which has raised the question about what seamanship is and whether it's even the right word to be using in modern shipping. It is a change, so um, for good or for bad, it's, it, it's still uh, this is more or less a starting point you know, to uh, how we can explore seamanship now in, in kind of new forms and, and try to dig more into actual um, results of this change. But also, we look at how fatigue tiredness, the COVID-19 pandemic and mandatory requirements for rest hours have led to new technologies from software startups to give seafarers a better life on board their vessels by making them aware of their own health and linking this to onboard productivity. We have to look at their mental state, we have to look at their long-term health, we need to look at their diets, we need to look at a variety of different factors which are hot potatoes. You know, in this industry, it's not something that an employer should or needs to have a say in, to be honest, because it, it does put under that, that, that discrimination piece, right? But however, having said that, we know that all of these different things together is what's going to increase someone's productivity, welfare, mental well-being, all of those different things that are important today. More later from Arshia Gratiot, founder of the startup Canary Sentinel, on using innovation and data to find ways to improve the changing role of seafarers on board. But first, a month ago, researchers at NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in Trondheim, published a paper on the changing concept of seamanship in the face of increased technology and reporting procedures. So, is seamanship dead? I've a book from my cadetship days. I'd forgotten I still had it until a few days ago. It's called The Theory and Practice of Seamanship, written by a maritime lecturer in 1962 called G.L. Danton. My edition, though, comes from the 1970s, and in it, Danton already alludes the difficulties in defining what seamanship is. I am more than ever convinced there is no such thing as the perfect seamanship textbook, he noted, and he added that an officer may serve on a ship built at any time during the last 50 years, so a textbook must blend technologies both ancient and modern with equipment which may be new or even obsolete. These were his somewhat prescient thoughts 50 years ago, and if G.L. Danton was still around today, he would probably double down on that observation, adding that changes seem to be constant. 
but in the 21st century, it is the speed of the change that is new. The NTNU paper looked at the way seamanship is changing, something the researchers noted first in the attitudes of those on board. A generational divide in opinion, which we've all heard talk about in many walks of life. You know, it's the it's not the same back in my day approach to modernization. On board a vessel, it's this belief that seamanship is a set of skills acquired from on-the-job learned common sense at one end of the story to a more modern one that seamanship is becoming a set of capabilities within what is being called an operational system with skills that are based around technified and procedural knowledge. One of the authors of the paper is Torgir Harvik, research professor at NTNU's Social Research, who went on board ships to talk to seafarers for the study. It's used in the, the rules and regulations. You know, it, it says it's different places in IMO regulation, for example, that it's uh, all the, the prescriptions and the procedures that, you're, uh, that you are bound to follow. That is not, a, I mean, you should still use your seamanship abilities to, to make sure that things go right. But they don't define it either. So it's a kind of a problem when, um, when we see that the context for seamanship is actually changing and the uh, conditions for, uh, for acquiring uh, seamanship uh, as the old timers define it is changing, but still the, the seafarers are expected to, uh, you know, to, to exert good seamanship as a, you know, this is kind of the last uh, resort if, uh, if they've done everything else right. The technology and process-driven requirements of ship's crews are what are pushing the evolution of seamanship. That's according to another co-author of the report, Tron Kongsvik, who is a professor at NTNU's Department of Industrial Economics and Technology. If we see at the, for example, the technological developments that we uh, we have seen with the ECTIS autopilot systems, dynamic positioning systems, and so on, uh, at least people on the bridge uh, are more passive monitoring systems more than active engaging in the operations. At least the sh there's, there's a shift there. And when you combine that with the uh, uh, new safety management systems, uh, perhaps uh, inspired from high risk industries such as the oil and gas, uh, then you perhaps are not that uh, prepared for the unforeseen anymore. Uh, a concept that could be useful is clinical intuition. That's experience-based common sense in a way that you um, build up over years. Uh, and that uh, provides you with the ability to you could say act on weak signals that could uh, signal some kind of danger. And of course, with all these uh, technological aids, all these prescriptions of how you should uh, do your work, you may lose, you could say, this kind of clinical intuition and, and, and the ability to act on weak signals. For example, one of the navigators that we interviewed, uh, it was quite new. Uh, he said that you could bring almost anyone right from the street, give them two months of training, and they could perform his job. 
providing that you had the technological systems and the procedures and so on uh, in place. So that kind of, that statement was important for me at least. It signals that this kind of traditional seamanship is kind of eroding. Uh, and then you could, of course, say that uh, the net effect related to safety could be positive because of the uh, technological uh, aids that you have and all the procedures and so on. Everything is streamlined, but at least there are some areas that, that you also lose something, of course. This paper, I think, is one of the first attempts to empirically assess the function of modern seamanship on modern complex ships. And while raising concerns about the relationship between seamanship and modern advanced technologies and connectivity, the report asks how we need to look at this evolution for future onboard crew. Here's Torge Harvik again. So it is a change. So um, for good or for bad, it's it, it's still uh, this is more or less a starting point, you know, to uh, how we can explore seamanship now in in kind of new forms and and try to dig more into actual um, results of this change. Is there another kind of professional identity, another kind of uh, seamanship, you could say, that will be evolving uh, that includes the uh, mastering of technological aids and uh, handling uh, procedures and so on? So you could say there could be um, erosion of seamanship, but also an evolution of seamanship that includes the mastering of technology and so on. Professors Trond Kongsvik and Torge Harvik on the empirical research into evolving definitions of seamanship given how the onboard roles are changing, including how regulations refer to seamanship in a more traditional context and whether we should be giving crew members the skills to make decisions. You can search online for their paper. It's called Reboxing Seamanship from Individual to Systematic Capabilities. So is it technology that's at fault? And as I have heard from many who have been at sea, are we beginning to ask too little of the seafarers in the face of capable technologies? One of the points that the researchers raised was how the technology on board a ship, or even anywhere, has to be useful and usable. It comes down to what is known as the user interface, and it's these considerations, for example, that make your smartphone smart, well, sometimes. I spoke to Nick Chubb. He's the founder and managing director of an innovation consultancy called Thetius in the UK that looks at startups, technologies, and how they influence or change their maritime space. And regular listeners will know him because of his technology updates on this podcast. I asked Nick about how technology is advancing, particularly as we see firms talking heavily about the value of autonomy. Not autonomy to remove the human off the ship. That's another topic altogether, and we have covered and will cover that in future podcasts. But here we're talking about autonomy of the crew. I think there's an interesting danger point where autonomy is not good enough to completely do everything that a seafarer does, but good enough to make the job of seafaring really, really dull to the point that you could switch off or, or you could do a make it a, a tick box exercise. Uh, well, I've definitely seen that the role, the day-to-day role of, uh, of, of a seafarer, whether that's deck or engine, has gone from one of doing, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago to one of overseeing. Uh, and, and increasingly, the, the human is sort of moving one layer of abstraction back 
Um, you know, you can now stand on the bridge of a ship, a modern ship, and, and depending on where you are in the world, of course, do very little. It's just a case of monitoring to make sure you're in the right place. Uh, it, it throws up a whole load of potential hazards just in terms of uh, how you actually manage that and make sure that people stay engaged and make sure that people can maintain their skills and know what to do when things go wrong. On, on your point about, I guess, autonomy of the seafarer, uh, and responsibility, I do think that has to change. Um, I, I don't think that ships today and in the future are, are going to sort of continue to be these uh, sort of black box that as soon as it sails, sets sail, uh, you know, it's it's totally detached from uh, teams ashore. I think that integration between ship and shore is, is going to become much more prevalent uh, and really understanding the master's responsibility uh, um, that there has to be an update of legislation for that to work because at the moment it places it all upon one person um, despite the fact that person is answerable to um, potentially a whole load of different parties who are, who are sat in quite comfy offices ashore. The added influence of technology on board has led to discussions about workforce stress and fatigue, particularly in 2020, the year that saw the planet get infected by a coronavirus and forget about seafarers. Now, staying with Nick, but changing topic a little, last month, Nick's company Thetius ran an innovation challenge for tech startups that had solutions that would help safety and welfare for crews. It was run with the shipping department of the energy giant Shell and UK-based satellite technology company Inmarsat. And what made it a real challenge competition with potential value for me was that Nick managed to get seafarers to be the judges of the competition and help decide the winner. The winners were a joint bid by two companies, one called WorkRest and the other Canary Sentinel. They have a joint software-led project to look at fatigue in relation to the work and rest hours on board, which are of course covered by regulations. It is particularly important, as we'll hear in a minute, given how shipping has been negatively impacted by the coronavirus. But here's Nick on the desire to run the competition. Thetius is a, is a little bit of a blunt instrument uh, in the you know, if, if partners we're working with want to pursue a particular path, uh, then we'll pursue it with them. So we outlined four challenge areas as part of that process. Um, uh, it was improving the safety of deck operations, uh, uh, improving the management of fatigue, reducing the level of uh, administration on board, and improving the overall welfare of, of seafarers. The way we came out with those four challenges is we actually we ran a workshop process with Shell and with Shell's fleet management team to work out what their uh, uh, the biggest problems that they want to solve uh, w- within the crewing department are, uh, and and that's what came out of that of that whole process. So, uh, really, the the, the aim uh, of of the innovation lab is to, is to kind of hold up a, a mirror to an organisation and say, well, where are the biggest problems that you face that you really want to invest in solving, uh, and then can we find uh, you partners in industry that will help you to solve them and. Um, Obviously, it's still early days, but we, we hope um, that's what's been the case now. And we're really excited to see how the, the proof of concept we're running with Canary Sentinel and, and WorkRest will, will work out. But but yeah, absolutely. That whole process was was re- really, we were just facilitators. Um, and so it was it was driven by, by Shell um, and obviously to a certain extent by Inmarsat's want to find solutions that will um, th- that will improve safety and welfare. The two companies, WorkRest and Canary Sentinel, are now preparing to roll out their onboard process of working with the crew of a Shell tanker. 
Stuart Willis is CMO at Software Group WorkRest, which works with crew members to help record work rest hours and remain compliant and productive. I asked him why he thought his service, which has been widely used in the super yacht sector, will make a difference on larger commercial vessels. Um, so when you look at the shipping sector in general, um, you know, the ship owners or the, or the ship managers have, uh, they're not as uh, in tune to how the crew are feeling at any given time. Obviously, they're looking at balance sheets um, and efficiencies being their kind of primary focus. Um, so crew welfare, it, it, it's kind of, it's a big leap to go from crew welfare to efficiency and cost efficiency. And where do those two marry up? Um, so for us, what we're looking to do certainly with this project is to show that by improving the overall fatigue levels on board or to kind of to get a picture of how those fatigue levels can impact efficiency, um, that's kind of where we see us bridging the gap between the crew welfare and the vessel managers in the sense that from an overall efficiency perspective, obviously, if you've got happier, healthier crew uh, that are better rested in general, you'll see less accidents, you'll see a more efficient vessel. Um, you know, they, they might do things uh, far more efficiently, uh, whether they be in port or, or going at sea, whether they be doing drills. Um, overall efficiencies that they should see from a top level and, and balance sheet perspective kind of will start to come through. Sharing a crew member's own health or medical data and their work rest patterns could be a breach of privacy laws. And crew could easily be persuaded to record false rest hours, as has been found on board some ships by port inspectors and union officials. So I think in terms of the way that we look at it from a data privacy perspective, essentially, you know, certainly from looking at the health data in, in particular, um, that data has to be, uh, you know, it, it's owned by the crew member and they can decide what to do with it. For us, we have to provide them with a big enough incentive or a big enough value for them to be able to share that data um, to, to something like this or to, to this project. Um, so for us, we have to really, you know, have a good value add for the crew member to want to provide their health data for us so that we can map it to their work schedules to see how their overall fatigue levels are impacted by the schedules that they're working. For us, though, the, the kind of the value that we see for the crew member in sharing that data with us is essentially that you know, if they, for example, are more alert in the morning versus in the evening, or wherever it might be for them specifically, obviously each, each crew member will have different medical makeup. But essentially what we're trying to do is understand when is best for them to work and which work schedules in particular are impacting them more than others. So what we hope to do using those bits of information that they're able to, to give to us is to provide them with a more personalized working schedule, which is going to be better for them. Essentially, if they are working work schedules, which is, you know, really goes against them personally from a health perspective, they over time will get impacted by fatigue more so than perhaps somebody that's working the same schedule, but is either a morning or an evening person and that schedule tends to fit in with them. So kind of our belief and our desire off the back of this is that we are providing them with a more personalized schedule, which will be better in tune for them. And overall, that should help their fatigue levels um, on a gradual sort of overtime basis. And overall, that should make them a much more sort of bearable work environment for them. The other startup in the trial is Canary Sentinel. It was launched by founder Arshia Gratiot in early 2020 as a response to the coronavirus pandemic. The COVID-19 sickness comes with severe fatigue, even long-term fatigue, which for an individual can be debilitating. 
However, fatigue, stress, tiredness, mental health, these are issues that seafarer groups have been trying to bring to the industry's attention for a number of years. Canary Sentinel works by asking the seafarer to either wear a wristband to record specific health data or use a modern smartphone to do so. It's the same information as one will get from a modern smartwatch with a health indicator on the underside or when you press your finger on that mystical sensor on the back of your smartphone. The aim is then to give a worker, a crew member, a better understanding of their underlying health. But having been a seafarer, I know that I would often be asked to work strange hours during a day. So my first question to Arsia Gratiot was to start by telling me the difference between a crew member being tired and that crew member being fatigued. So I think oftentimes people do use the terms interchangeably, you know, tiredness, fatigue, same thing, I'm tired, I feel fatigued. But if we take a step back and if we look at the the medical description of fatigue, it's actually very different. Um, I can break it down to you just in our lives. Um, if supposing you worked out today and you did that extra you know, hour, tomorrow you did the same thing, the after tomorrow you did the same thing, you feel that your muscles are really fatigued, you know, um, but you come back after your workout, you get on a conference call and you are at your best, doesn't make a difference. That's your muscles that are fatigued, it's not your brain, surely. Now imagine if um, you are not able to sleep for whatever set of reasons, I mean, mental stress maybe, or just really worried about something that's going on in your life. You're in bed, your your body's rested, no problem, you're not moving, but your brain's buzzing, right? Um, Or if you are not able to um, think clearly because of something else, you're not well, you feel that your, your, your anxiety levels are high, whatever it is, all of those things lead to fatigue. And it's not just about your muscles being tired, it's about your brain being tired. And over time, when you see these episodes happening more and more, you can't get sleep, even though your body's rested, you're still not on 100%. That's what adds to problems. That's what actually leads to those long-term conditions. With muscle fatigue, get a good good night's rest, you're fine. Get back um, up, ready to go. So I think there are two very, very different, uh, different things that we're dealing with here. And because of COVID, what what uh, this this um, appreciation of fatigue and chronic fatigue is becoming more real. It's becoming a part of people's everyday parlance. The reason for that is because one of the downsides of COVID nineteen is chronic fatigue. It's not something the medical community has ever recognized until now, and especially long term COVID. You know, and and it's becoming a problem. So I think now slowly but surely we are going to see that people are going to recognize that these are two very different beasts and they have to be dealt with separately. In terms of what you're going to be able to um, do working with Stuart and working with the ship owner Shell and Inmarsat through this project, are you hoping to be able to get a better understanding of how often you see seafarers feeling fatigued and managed to override it? What, What are you looking to get out of this next year? Yeah, in an ideal world, being able to help people manage fatigue is a very, um, there's a continuum of care here. We have to look at their mental state. We have to look at their long-term health. We need to look at their diets. We need to look at a, a variety of different factors, which are hot potatoes. You know, in this industry, it's not something that an employer should or needs to have a say in, to be honest, because it, it does border on that, that, that discrimination piece, right? 
But however, having said that, we know that all of these different things together is what's going to increase someone's productivity, welfare, mental well-being, all of those different things that are important today. So where is the first step? The first step needs to be in an area which today has some form of regulation that underpins it. It's a requirement and it's something that you or me, the, the owners or, or the users of this data or the owners of this data are actually comfortable with sharing. So if we look at things like the number of hours that you worked and we're able to help with managing that piece through Shell, it gives us a foot in the door. The most important thing to anybody in terms of product and user experience is if you see results. Now imagine if I could make that little tweak to your schedule where you don't have to work that extra hour when you know that you go downhill, you start crashing at three o'clock and I, the, your boss, say, actually you can stop working at two o'clock. And over time, I will be more comfortable with this whole proposition of sharing you know, some kind of data or being able to adhere to schedules which may cross or may you know, cross that boundary line, so to speak. So it's all about stickiness. It's about driving um, um, comfort levels within the owners, I mean, sorry, the owners of that data, so me, the user, and then maybe move on from there. It really is a first step. Um, I think that it could lead to good things if the experience of the crew and the people who use this product is positive. It, it has to be bottom up. It can't be top down. That was Archie Gratiot from Canary Sentinel, who, along with Workrest, won the innovation challenge run recently by Inmarsat Shell and Thetius. Now they'll be rolling out their trial in the coming year to see how effective this is in turning crew health awareness into better operations on board a vessel. But now, back to Nick Chubb from Thetius with our regular technology and innovation update. Thanks, Craig. This week, the Digital Container Shipping Association published their latest set of data standards. This time it's for electronic bills of lading. The standards are built on top of the UN's multimodal transport reference data model with the aim of ensuring that there is a global industry framework that accelerates digitalization through a unified industry effort. Vessel optimization firm Lean Marine and AI application developer Mulflow have begun a collaboration with the Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg to develop a new AI-powered semi-autonomous system for planning and executing more energy-efficient sea voyages. The Via Kazen project, which is being funded by the Swedish Transport Administration, brings together industry experts, academia, and ship owners to explore how AI can be used to operate ships as efficiently as possible. Danish chart distributor Wildback has partnered with UK startup Intelligent Cargo Systems to offer container lines a portfolio of digital products to optimize vessel performance in port. And lastly, Inmarsat's latest satellite, GX5, which was launched in November last year, has gone into commercial service. It will provide additional bandwidth capacity to customers in Europe and the Middle East, with the new satellite effectively doubling the current capacity of Inmarsat's geostationary fleet. Nick Chubb from Thetius. That's it for this episode. Please remember to subscribe, comment and like this podcast. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends and remember to visit the Fathom World website for regular updates and the newsletter there too. Until the next time, goodbye.